morning. So I'll go ahead and call us to order. This is the Thursday, October 19th meeting of the Historic Landmarks and Preservation Commission. We have um, one voting item of business today, and that's to approve the minutes from the 10-3-23 meeting. So if you haven't had a chance to look those over, take a couple minutes and we will entertain a motion to approve those. Hopefully we had a chance to review them beforehand because I don't think we have them in front of us. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I move to approve the minutes from the last meeting, September meeting. I have a motion. Second. And a second. Open. All in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? All right. Minutes approved. Oh, yeah, let's do a quick roll call of who we have for quorum today. Um, Morgan did just step in, so maybe call him last and he'll join us. Ackerman. Present. Fuller. Present. Metter. Present. Lou. Present. Rosenberg. Present. Owen. Present. Omidy. Present. And Ward is around here somewhere. In a kind of same format as the last time you'll give us a quick little intro summary and then discussion. Absolutely. That's what we'll do. So I did print. Uh, copies of the agenda for you all so we could keep up with which guidelines we were doing next. So we thought we'd start with the site guidelines today. And so with the site guidelines, sorry, can I adjust this? Uh, they still, of course, like all of our guidelines, stress the importance of preservation of historic materials first, and then dive into um, when preservation is impossible, what those new materials should look like. Um, the newer versions had taken out some of the specificity that staff would like to put back in. So you'll notice that with the staff suggestions that, um, you know, we're, where we felt like things were a little vague or not as helpful, we added in a few more bullet points and things within site, which are typically what we already do. And then something that's different about the site guidelines in the new version is there is more guidance on retaining walls. And this was something when um, staff received this grant was working with the consultant that we really focused on better use of retaining walls. Our guidelines before were kind of loosey-goosey about retaining walls. And we see a lot of those cases, especially um, or specifically in the Cherokee Triangle District. And so there is um, a new illustration that goes with some actual guidance on retaining walls. And so it talks about, you know, where you should add a wall, where you shouldn't add a wall, what are some alternatives to a retaining wall? Maybe you don't specifically need a retaining wall. Maybe you need some other items that can help you mitigate whatever it is that you're trying to do in your slopey front yard. Um, because specifically in Cherokee Triangle, those 
front yard slopes, the topography, you can look down the block and they're clearly designed to be that way for a specific reason. And so that ARC struggles a lot with um, where can they, where can't they allow a retaining wall and what should that look like? So we asked for some more guidance on that so that they were tighter parameters and it's really all that's changed in those site guidelines. One of the things that I noticed kind of going through this was we talk a lot about um, adjacent sites and adjacent structures and don't really get into uh, conforming, non-conforming to the guidelines. Because I know we get a lot of people in ARC saying, well, my neighbor has this, and but it doesn't really conform to our guidelines. So I don't know if we should have more discussion about that. That's a great point. But I marked up a lot of those instances and just kind of wrote historically appropriate or something like that. But um, I think adjacency could become a weird thing. Yeah. So his, how would you want to phrase that? Like historic adjacency or historically appropriate adjacent sites or I don't know. Hi, what meeting are you here for? Okay. Right, we need to shoot them. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, hi. <laughs> yeah, or if, I don't know if it's just adjacent sites that meet the design guidelines or something like that. Okay. We get into it with fences too. You know, it says existing fences. There's a lot of non-conforming existing fences in a lot of our districts. I think it also shows up in streetscape. It does, and it happens with retaining walls too, because you have retaining walls, those like river rock ones that are put in in the '60s that are sure. like some of them are like this tall, and you're like, well, we wouldn't, you know. The other comment I wrote down is under driveways and parking areas. Um, it, I think, responds well to our current historic districts, but thinking ahead towards like mid-century modern and how that might be applied, mm -hmm. what we need to allow some openness there. Um, it talks, you know, that pattern changes, I guess, as we start to think about new things becoming historic. Yeah, and the new ST.4 specifically says, do not create a new driveway or garage that opens onto a primary street. And so we recommended at adding a little bit of like, unless, like absolutely necessary, but it could be something like, unless the historic context is appropriate. Right. More so. Okay. Specifically on ST3 walks and pathways, Talks about traditional sidewalk, use a traditional sidewalk material as seen in the district. Feels like that's a little too broad. And if we get the historic mix language into some of this stuff would be helpful because I see that happen a lot where people are like, well, it's concrete. I just poured some new concrete. It's brand new looking white concrete instead of in a historic mix. Historic mix does show up somewhere in here. And I don't know if this is the right spot. The historic for it. mix might change based on where you are too. 
Right. Um, so like, I know the historic mix for Central Park is a different historic mix than other areas. So it kind of has that reddish color to it. Um, so under that ST.3, do you want to add us to add some language about historic concrete mix? And you're right, it's in here somewhere else, but I'm not sure where it is. Yeah. It seems like we should try to use that at least in quotes historic mix because that could at least trigger someone to know to know oh this is not just called concrete company right yeah. at least call with the historic mix and raise a flag or maybe ask you all like what does that mean and you could help okay that's something we should include in the glossary of like what the definition of a historic mix is that's a good that's a good i think on some of these things it would also be helpful to leave it so it directs folks to ask staff um, instead of trying to like figure out everything because some of that will be better handled through consultation. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I picked it up somewhere else when I was reading this, but maybe this is a spot for it too. There, there has been a city pattern for sidewalks, at least in the main district or at least mm -hmm. It was known as a city pattern mm -hmm. um, that should be maintained where appropriate, but that really only applies to to West Main and downtown, I think. Well, Butchertown also has um, a large amount of sidewalks that the pavers, the brick pavers aren't historic in age necessarily, but they have like West Main, they have that similar configuration that runs throughout the district. So it's something that we do ask people to maintain rather than you being the only you know property on this long paver. To you might just up. add the word pattern to that uh, okay. maintain existing width and pattern or something. Yeah, there's a good picture of that on Streetscape looking down south on 8th Street. Mm -hmm. S question on ST7. This install a cast iron fence under two foot five inches where there's historic precedent. That seems awfully specific. That's always been in the guidelines. And um, the two six would be bad, or I think it's funny that we didn't actually flag that because that's something that's been it's been very difficult. <laughs> and the ARC generally grants relief to that. Um, while they don't go up to four feet in the front yard, I mean, they do generally go more up to like three feet or something okay, like that. I didn't know if there was a code element to that from residential or what's that, driving that now. just to carry over from the original guidelines. I'm not sure why they were that specific. So if you all are amenable to Changing that a little bit. Call it a low fence or something, and that gives the ARC maybe a little bit more leeway. Is what we also look at with that one is sometimes you have that historic fence on top of a retaining wall. Sometimes you have it in the ground. So if you have it on top of a retaining wall, you don't want it. Too much taller because then you've kind of got a fortress in your front yard. But if it's straight in the ground, a two and a half foot fence is really just kind of like a border. So that makes me think we need to, to <laughs> clarify what that measurement's from. Yeah. From the walking mm -hmm. surface or something. Under under the zoning code, it is clarified. If you put a fence directly atop a retaining wall, you begin at the base of the retaining wall on whatever side is lower, because the retaining wall usually implies one side might have a different elevation. If it is stepped back, I think it's one foot, then the the measurement resets. So if that's kind of the baseline we use if we want to go into route of consistency. 
the one foot's probably a little arbitrary, but it is what it, they put into the code. And that's how we actually, that's how our officers are trained to measure fences, even privacy fences in the rear yard. Like we have them, you know, if someone puts in a fence and it, they need to go measure to see if it's in compliance or not, that's how they measure. So it might be good to mimic that language if you don't mind. Yeah, on that one, the privacy fencing, it says shall be seven feet in height or less. I know we've had some instances on edge conditions, like in Cherokee Triangle, where we've allowed taller ones. Does the shall preclude that or should that be should? Um, so land development code in most of our districts, because it's traditional neighborhood, is generally eight feet is the privacy fence in some situations i'm not going to put a blanket anything joe's looking at me not a blanket anything <laughs> just i know in a lot of situations in rear yards traditional rear yards in our districts we have this because our guidelines say seven land development code says eight but we've always done seven generally as our commission because of the height barrier and what that looks like from the alley because it's alley side where you get some of those fences that are extremely tall. So I don't know if you want to talk about surrounding context in that instance, because like in the one in Cherokee, the surrounding context yeah. is what enabled that to a degree. But in most situations, it would not be appropriate. And just to muddy the waters, how we do defenses, defense height limitations are what occurs in a required setback. Once they get out of those required setbacks, any fence is really just limited by the general height requirements. So we're just concerned about the look of the fence. So if it's stepped back from the property line, it can go much higher than seven feet um, under the, or eight feet under the zoning code. What ultimately controls it is building code. Once you pass seven feet, it triggers a building permit requirement. And just most people don't want a 10, 12 foot fence, but zoning would allow it. Um, so I'm just, Pointing that out, if we have a concern about a taller fence that just isn't on the property line, we should address it here because zoning is not going to save today. Gotcha. I have a comment for this section and streetscape. Um, be helpful to provide some guidance on like ADA mm -hmm. accommodations. I feel like that would come up in both of these. Yeah, and ADA is mostly covered. I want to say in like new construction okay or maybe addition trying to remember both, yeah yeah or in both of them but as far as ramps and things like like concrete ramps i would think that would be more site related than because addition kind of looks at ramps that are built like onto a building so typically some other material even just defining the difference between a ramp and a sloping sidewalk and say we would probably prefer sloping sidewalks over ramps because you don't need handrails. That would be a lot less intrusive to a site. We have ST18. Like midway down, use incandescent lighting. <laughs> I don't think we want to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And then further down, it's just a phraseology thing for commercial property, minimize standalone lighting. Instead, use ambient light from a storefront as a light source. I think we're trying to say don't put lights on the outside of the building. Is that what we're trying to say? I can't tell. Where's that one? It's uh. 
five up from the bottom of ST18. For commercial property, minimize standalone oh, lighting. I read that more as like light pole. Thing. Yeah, what are, what are we trying to say? If I can't figure building. it out, we got to. Because we do allow, like, we would allow a storefront to have a gooseneck or something. Because what we really focus on, like with most things, is that the light is pointed down. And so is that a standalone? Yeah, that's an odd word standalone intent, I, don't I would put say freestanding if that's yeah because standalone yeah okay, we don't want like a spotlight never seen that in a code yeah freestanding is probably right because it's recommending you use ambient light from a storefront as a light source which is saying don't put light fixtures on here turn the lights on inside and let it glow out which is a, a design strategy right but i think Freestanding is what we're trying to avoid. There wasn't any mention of neon in the lighting section. I didn't know if that's something we wanted to specifically not allow or to allow for, because like Butchertown and some other places, I'm, you know, our mixed commercial and residential districts, I think we'll ask for it. Yeah, we really only have discussion of neon when we look at signs rather than this sort of lighting, because honestly, the lighting that people put in their storefronts, we generally haven't regulated. So if you want to put rope lights around your little storefront, we have hang anything. Yeah. Window or something. Yeah. We generally an open closed sign that might be decorative. Like we have not really regulated anything like that. Also circled related to lighting the 1.5 to 2 foot candles. Right in 17 that changes. Is that still an ST 18 or is that? I think it moved to 17. In. Or. The old standard, I don't know that it's in the new one. I guess that specific didn't carry through. It just has the incandescent. I just had a question on ST19 where it said, do not harm historic resources through road widening or underground utility repair. Is does the city have to get COAs for some of that stuff if they want to go through and widen roads or replace underground lines or anything like that? So with roads, we work with public works. Okay. Any sort of street, sidewalk, alley that is in one of our districts, we have a cooperation with public works where we look at things like that. But I don't necessarily, I don't know. That's a carryover. Again, it's just pulled from another guideline just to have it in there. But if we want to remove, we can remove. I think you can leave it as it should. I don't think we require COAs. We just ask them to respect the guidelines. So if yeah. you put it in the guideline and change it to a should, so it's not ironclad, but there are private roads and things that I don't know if that would apply to or not. I was going to say, I don't know who, what homeowner would do a lot of road widening, but like you said, private roads, you could add driveways to that if somebody's trying to make a 
single lane driveway into a two lane that could start to encroach upon historic properties. Yeah, and we've had instances in some of the districts where there is a platted alley, but it was never constructed. And so then the homeowner takes it upon themselves through public works, like public works isn't going to complete that alley, but the homeowner then completes the alley so that they then have that sort of access. So we have had those kinds of instances, but very few and very rare. <laughs> but yeah, let's fix that language a little bit. There's a lot of talk in here too about landscaping. Um, I know that's kind of exempt from our COA, but mm -hmm. should we refer back to like the city's goals for tree canopies or um, maybe not requiring certain plantings, but providing like a suggestion list, even for the ones on the slopes saying these are potential plants you could use to stabilize your sloping site. We could do suggestions like that. Or even if it's not in the guidelines, something that staff just wants to maintain a list of, like we do for a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Have any districts with homes that have original? Gas lamp fixtures, probably in Old Louisville. I looked straight at Howard. Sorry, Howard. Yeah, that was my instinct. Um, <laughs> probably in Old Louisville. I'm not sure if they. I feel like there are a couple that still have gas going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like how many of them have been installed on private property or? Uh huh. Yeah, we we installed electric lights. They're not gas lights though. But I think some of the private homes do still have the gas light, the lanterns or something in yeah. their porches. Yeah. yeah. It only because it says, you know, preserve and maintain original light fixture and it talks about rewiring and stuff. And I just didn't know if we wanted to clarify that you could keep gas fixtures. I would imagine the, the gas fixtures, if there are in homes, are tied into the gas lines that say are on St. James and that becomes a very expensive proposition because some of the gas lights are actually falling, have fallen over. So um, to repair them, I, I don't know what impact those have on private residences. I'm not aware of any private residences in Old Louisville that yeah. actually have gas lights. There may be some, but I'm not aware of any. Yeah, I mean, I, I only know of electric ones. I think most yeah. people are kind of shying away <laughs> from adding gas yeah. and electric, maybe a little more, a little safer feeling. One of the other changes I should point out was, <clears throat> excuse me, ST.8, so the new ST.8, the old ST.22, about preserving large trees. We, um, it hasn't historically been a very helpful guideline. It's kind of vague in, in its, <laughs> how it's been written. And so we're preserving a large tree in the front yard unless it is disease, dying, or damaging the historic structure. A report from an arborist can determine this. So we're trying to give it some more parameters instead of just every single tree can come down because we have no parameters to it. 
And that's generally what we've been trying to do at staff, but. That's on page seven of the analysis sheets, if that's what you're searching for. We also took out the parts, the consultant had added in parts about trees along the public rights of way. We took that out because we have no purview over that. That is urban forestry and that is their purview and they have their own permitting process and we don't want to be contradictory to that. Under that bullet might consider like instead of will not maybe will minimize the likelihood or, or something like that. Okay. Um, I think that in a lot of these areas, plant a canopy tree, eventually it could become an issue. It came down. Move on to streetscape. The street state, streetscape, excuse me. These are guidelines again that did not change all that much. Um, they are pretty straightforward guidelines. However, there are a lot of a host of new guidelines which focus on preservation of historic materials, um, being a little bit more explicit about that and um the materials that you use if you do have to do replacement again it's very similar to site but just slightly different there and then again we added some language or removed some language about right-of-way trees so that it does not conflict as i mentioned previously with urban forestry yeah i think in here is where historic mix would maybe show up again and city pattern as you show the city pattern and the photo, it's a very good photo of that. Um, and then S, SS3 talks about limestone curbing, but I wonder if it's stone curbing. I know there's a lot of granite curbing. And yeah, there's a bunch of both. Maybe change it to stone, be a little more open. I think the language and the SS5 
covers that. And I see here that ST.15 has some of the same language about the road widening and things like that. So the comments you made to site, any of the comments you made to site that could carry over to Streetscape, we can make sure that those mirror one another. That way you don't feel like you have to sit here and go through all of these again and say the same things you just said. Should that be SS15? Everything else is SS here. Oh, yeah, that should be. Maybe that's why it says ST because it's like literally the same guideline. anything in here about you know getting permits for anything you do in the public right-of-way that's typically a requirement maybe it goes without saying but beyond just the trees yeah there, I don't think that there is but that's a good point because it talks about street furniture but you know there's all kinds of stuff about if you're serving alcohol on the sidewalk and well even street furniture depending on where it is like especially on Main Street like yeah I mean that's right away from building to building so Right. Yeah. Something to think about. And ADA requirements of like leaving a clear path for pedestrians or something might be helpful. I think you have to permit like even restaurant furniture on, on Main Street. Yeah. <laughs> this is historic. Making a comeback. I, I guess my only question to Savannah is are we is there anything that we're doing that potentially could limit I know we want to keep ADA movement on the sidewalk, but I don't want to limit uh, a retailer's ability to have outdoor furniture for seating. So we're not, I don't think, 
No, I think it's just working with the city to determine to make sure it's what's appropriate yeah. in getting the proper permit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Public works would control all that. Yeah, I just don't want to give public works more power to say no is my only thing. You know, I want to encourage it. I would say public works would control it up until it hits the property line. So what's in the right of way sidewalk seating, but if it's kind of we've noticed some are in front yard areas or side yard areas that would fall under zoning and your full jurisdiction. There's SS 13. I wonder if we just reference the city's tree list. Yes. We can do that. move on so addition our next ones if everyone's ready and oh yeah sorry before you move on so i was this is one thing i just noticed and it's real mainly because of downtown but it's sx sx.6 when you're talking about um excuse me, uh, SS.7, when we're replacing a curb. Mm -hmm. So the original material in downtown, the curbs were granite, but a lot of times they've been replaced with cement and that cement's been there for 50 years. So if somebody goes in and has to replace a curb, are they gonna say the original material is cement when it really should be granite? So we work with public works on curbs, um, curbs and sidewalk. And we kind of defer to public work like we that's a conversation with us in public works of is there granite material available because they do have. Some limestone material, some granite material that they keep like when they have to pull out and they have to do pour new concrete or something. We have an ordinance that asks them to keep those materials that they salvage okay. and then they can then provide those materials to salvage. But if there is a reason for a specific location, not being able to go back with stone, like maybe it's too close to a corner where they have to install their ADA ramps or something. So that's a partnership we've had with public works where we look at very closely at what material can go back. And if it has to be concrete, then they're careful with the concrete that they use and that it forms and it matches um, so that it all lines up. So we strive to go back with stone, but it's it's one of those partnership things. And we do all of that internally as staff. You provide guidance on the ADA ramps to public works when they install those as well. Yes, so we, I look at all of those that are in the districts and because some of the districts have sidewalks that have pavers, some of them are just historic concrete. Some of them have stone curbing, as I mentioned. And so they show me the extent of what they have to remove, how they're going to remove it, how they're going to put it back. Um, 
specifically like an old level has a lot of brick alleyways. So we look at how the ramp comes down across the alleyway for the sidewalk and all of that. So what about the detectable warning? The what? The, the detectable warning, kind of those little. Oh, those little bumpy things. Yeah, yeah, just let them do their thing there. <laughs> but there's different materials that can be used. Yeah. Might blend in better. I don't know that any of them would be historically yeah. appropriate. Just it wouldn't have been around yeah. when it comes to like the ADA stuff like that. I let public works steer that ship and I focus on how it marries the rest of the historic details. And I didn't know what those were called. So thank you. <laughs> Bumps in the sidewalk. I don't want to forget about our, our public comment portion. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, oh okay. cool. Nice. Okay. <laughs> if you do want to weigh in on anything, just hop up and we can let you speak. <laughs> it is. Okay. So do you all want to move on to addition? Yeah, okay. Um, again, the addition guidelines, these aren't something that have changed dramatically. They're pretty straightforward guidelines. Um, we did under A.2, which is on page one of your analysis sheets, we recommend adding in a bullet point about camelback additions on historic shotgun homes that are appropriately scaled because it talks about not constructing full floor additions, which is, you know, generally agreed upon. And it talks about how additions should be subordinate, but sometimes when you have a traditional addition like a camelback, that's not subordinate. But where it's placed, how it's scaled can be appropriate to the context around it. So we wanted to add something back in to allow for that sort of addition. And then also um, the new 8.1, so it's the second boxes down, the original guideline talks about how additions should not exceed half of the original building's floor area or building footprint, and that was deleted. And I don't know if that's something that you all want to ponder a little bit. Um, so I thought that was still a good idea to keep, um, especially on the shotgun conversation. I think we've seen a lot of them where they just keep adding on to the back, and then suddenly mm -hmm. the addition, the house fills most of the lot, and the addition is larger than the original house. I'll just say, I think the diagrams you guys added were really great. Yeah. Very Agreed. illustrative. Yeah. Agreed. And what was it's kind of what made me think about it, what was interesting to me is the diagram shows the camelback and talks about how the camelback is appropriate, but then there's no guideline that would allow you to build said camelback. So that's why. 
just think that was an oversight. Well, but that being said, the one in the middle talked about the one and a half story addition with the connector. That is mm -hmm. clearly larger than what we just talked about. The what did right. we say? Half of the footprint. And is that even something that we want to take a look at or I mean even the uh one story attached addition looks bigger than half the footprint. Mm-hmm. I don't know if half is the magic number or if it's just needs to be smaller, subordinate. Visually subordinate. Well, and it's a should too. I mean, it's so it's got some flexibility there to focus on context, maybe with some more, like you said, visually subordinate, maybe with some more clarification language, we can get that. I think zoning used to govern a lot of that from the standpoint of an FAR, but I don't, did that change? I haven't done any residential. We we removed FAR for residential district. But I thought so. As the city densifies, there's going to be a more push towards more, more uh, built space on each of the pieces, of property, which is I think a goal of the city from a from a use standpoint. But from a historic preservation, you want to make it relative to the massing of the neighborhood somehow, like not out of scale right and speaking to far cherokee triangle specifically there were a lot of i mean there are some quite large volumes of homes there that were wanting to do additions that weren't as large as the home but because of far regulations and how those lots were that restricted a lot of them from doing additions even though we as in preservation felt that they were visually design appropriate so that is that the far is helpful in those sorts of situations I think the street view diagrams do a good job of illustrating that, that even those two that maybe wouldn't meet the half of the original structure are not visually obtrusive from the street, which is more what we're worried about than a bird's eye view. Uh, for the half, do you mean the footprint? Because if you have a shotgun house, you add some in the back, a two-story, it's probably very difficult to do half of the square footage. But if you do like footprint, half that probably will be yeah it, it yeah it to emily to your point it has a or building footprint so it gives you the two that you can look at you can okay. look at the footprint or you can look at the floor area Excuse me. another one i wanted to point out um on page three of your staff analysis tables a11 and A12 were not included in the new guidelines, but there's something that we recommend including. So A11 speaks specifically to setting back additional stories from the historic wall plane of commercial buildings. Um, and of course, not damaging historic character and things like that. And so that's something that we would like to leave in there. And I think that that's while the diagram is for a residential property, you certainly we have additions to commercial structures, institutional structures. And so we want to keep those parameters in there because sometimes going up is your best option on some of these buildings. But how you do it and doing it appropriately is we want to have those parameters in there. And I don't think it's just upper floor additions, even with. 
ground floor additions, right. it's usually good to kind of step that back a little bit so that the historic wall plane doesn't continue on into the addition. So you might just yeah. add a little note about that. The diagrams show that, but it doesn't really say that. And then A12, which was not included that we want to keep is do not ad design additions to appear older than the original building. Complimentary, of course, is totally fine, you know, you, but sometimes you have these additions that come in that are quite interesting and they're well designed, but it's like, that's pretty faux historic and we'd like it to be clear what is the original property and what is been the addition onto the original property, so. On 8.6, you talk about using building materials that are similar or subordinate. There's not much discussion of when is it appropriate to use similar and when is it appropriate to have it be subordinate? Is it like a cost thing, availability thing, size thing? Mm -hmm. The way you use it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really the way you use it. That's why the bullet points, like we've always had these bullet points. Wood is subordinate to brick. Brick is subordinate to stone. And that feels pretty arbitrary, but um, <laughs> I know, I know. But if you have a wood siding house, it may be appropriate to do an addition with wood siding. So yes, it's similar. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The other one I flagged was A.8 talks about fire escapes. Those aren't really a thing you can do anymore. <laughs> um, so you may want to change that to fire stair or yeah. fire egress or something like that. Yeah. And that's also that guideline is where we recommended putting the accessibility bullet points, adding that to, um, because the way this is written, I feel like the accessibility points are a little harsh, like user removable or portable ramp. Um, put it on a secondary elevation. Like it's like, depending on a site, that's not always possible. And the function of the building, that's not always possible or appropriate. And so, I mean, I understand. The spirit of that's strong though. I've had a project where, you know, it's an historic property that's not in an historic district and the building code would say, well, you need to, to build a permanent ramp, permanent. And they wanted to find that as concrete. Right. But it's maybe a historic stone porch that maybe needs uh, just an aluminum ramp now so not, the spirit of that's not bad and so that's why we wanted to put those guidelines there so that to that point if a secondary elevation isn't available then if it has to be on a primary do it in a way where historic materials are not damaged do it in a way you know like allow some leeway there the other thing I think we see downtown sometimes is old storefronts, especially on corners where there is sort of a sloping entry that may be tiled or terrazzo and it is, it exceeds an ADA ramp guideline, but I know the city has allowed for steeper ramps in smaller sections like that. So making sure people know you don't have to tear out historic material for sake of ADA.
And then appurtenances was one I think could use a definition maybe in our glossary. Yep. And in A.7, where it talks about satellite dishes and other modern appurtenances, in the paragraph that kind of intros it, it says, um, do it in a way that is not visible from the public, public right away. And then A.7 says, minimize visibility. Mm -hmm. So just need to clarify, should it not be visible or minimize the visibility? It should be minimized because I don't, you can't always control. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, uh, the illustration there shows an example with the check mark, so it's good, but it's visible. It's, it's minimized. Yeah. <laughs> but they had to do it probably to get an elevator in there. Yeah, that's the elevator shaft. <laughs> I can't see it. Couldn't if they tear, didn't tear down the building next to it. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else on additions? We feel good about additions. Right. Garages. This one's changed significantly. Um, I mean, you all see our current garage design guidelines are literally a table. Um, and don't use and they imply that you use the other guidelines when talking about preservation of historic garage material, but they're just not that explicit. And so um, the great thing about these new garage and secondary structure guidelines is that they do focus on preservation of historic garages, carriage houses, et cetera, accessory structures, um, and provide some parameters there, which we did not explicitly have written down before. And again, it's great that this guideline also incorporates other buildings that are accessory that we do review and we've never really had great guidelines with which to review them. So sheds, carports, things like that, those have always been this sort of, where do we put them? How do we use them kind of guidelines? And so it's nice to have more cl uh, clear parameters around those. So are we, we certain that, that when we're talking about garages in two different places, we're saying the same thing in both places? It refers to the new construction residential design guidelines. So that is one of my points. Yes. I would Our like confusing to next to it. garage stuff out of new construction and just be in garage. That was one of my bullet points to ask to you all about. Yep. I think. Okay. Is the carriage house the same as a garage? It isn't always. No, but it's oh. regulated under these guidelines. Okay. And it specifically talks about historic carriage houses historic. I'm glad you said that because that was one of my bullet points. Having garages, you have the design guidelines here because it's. Is your microphone on, Robert? Because I can't hear you. It is on. Okay. <laughs> is it working? Yeah. yeah, there you are. Uh, <laughs> I mean, on the, the secondary headline is residential garages and secondary structure. Mm -hmm. Cover everything, wouldn't we? Wouldn't just add that to okay. the title? Okay. Can we add ADUs to that title? If if we're gonna carriage house and ADUs are kind of synonymous, but we 
evolved since these were written yep. to use the term ADU a lot more rather than have that be inferred under a secondary structure. Yeah. They're as important as a garage to me, just saying. Yeah. This is a word thing, and I think you guys fixed it in your uh, recommendations, but it says preserve an original, and then it says keep a historic garage, and then it says historically yeah. significant garage. Yeah. Like just where he, where original is in there, I changed to historic because okay. how, you can never original know what? what's original. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> I don't have a time machine. So historic is what we're going to go with. And I'm glad you brought that up too. Because it, it's kind of in each section. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we tried to change it in every single section that where it said original, we put historic instead. Then also something I wanted to have us discuss is that the guidelines still and have always called for single garage door openings rather than a double door or anything larger than that. We have requests for a lot of relief from that every single year. And a lot of it is because some of our alleys are frankly very teeny tiny. Um, people park on the alleys, there are trash cans on the alleys. You might have a garage right across the alley from you. And so it's a lot of turning radius things and cars are also quite larger um, than they, yeah, carriages and things were historically. So <laughs> um, we, are, we get requested to have a lot of relief from that. And so I think what we as staff would like to focus on is how that door appears that it's not just one big solid door with no real articulation or something like that, which the guidelines call for anyway. So if the door is designed to break up some of that massing, how do you all feel about having double doors be permissible with the single doors as well? I totally support it from personal perspective. Mm -hmm. Everybody else not. Mm -hmm. I, um, the, 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 uh, alleys that I'm on, uh, the, the people have those little garage doors. They're not using it. They cannot get in and out. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a matter of practicality. It's just not practical to have those garages on those tiny alley to get in and out. They are all used for storage. I mean, they're just not using it. It's it's not possible. I mean, it might be not for uh, a travel level like me. I, 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 don't, I don't think I can get it. I, I'm not even having a garage, but I see my neighbors struggle with those double door garages. Yeah. You know, they're just not using it. Maybe I just haven't shopped for a garage door for a while, but I don't, what is, do you have examples of double doors that are articulated as two doors? I don't know that I've ever really We seen actually that. do. Um, <laughs> So are, we keep, okay. yeah, we keep them like we keep examples that we okay. email out and things like this is not a specific door we're telling you to buy. Here's what it could look like. And we do it with front doors. We do it because okay. when you say a three quarter light door, most people are like, well, I don't know what you're saying to me. So we yeah, we keep images of all of that. But it could be something that could be included in here when we get to illustrations that there maybe there are better illustrations. Yeah. Flat panel X. Yeah. Yeah. Double door that's got some articulation. Yeah. So we can do that. You may want to add something about, you know, double doors are not appropriate where they're primary street facing or something. So we don't get people trying to do garage additions with giant doors that face the street where they have a 20 foot driveway that they could get into two single doors instead. Um, I don't know if it's just something about alleys are appropriate there with the turning radius of 
the street or something like that. Distance from the public right away. Okay, we can look at language like that and see what. Because yeah. also, if the because we just had a new carriage house construction in Cherokee Triangle where they have a driveway, like their property was built with a driveway, they have no alley, mm -hmm. and so the carriage house is actually tucked far enough behind the house that you can't see it from the street. So we did allow the the ARC allowed a double door. So. I think illustrations may go a long way because this yeah. goes up against a bunch of constraints that people are against on these, like the width of the alley, the width of the lot, the width of yeah. the building they're putting the door in. They might have room to have two single doors, but they might not. Right. So some illustrations would go a long way. Um, on G7, where it says preserve an original limestone curb or brick alley, are we limiting ourselves with limestone? I know that's kind of been a discussion, limestone versus granite. Um, I, I just don't know with the primary material. I think to Christopher's point earlier, maybe we should just leave it to stone because I think it depends on what is on that location. Like in some of our districts, it's predominantly limestone, but I mean, these guidelines span multiple districts. So I think that's a good point to bring up that it should be just be stone and we can go from there with it. Another one that might uh, change as we consider mid-century homes and structures is the low sloped roofing. Yes. Um, membrane I could kind of agree with, but yeah, the low sloped roofing, we've got a lot of those in mid-century carports and garages. Yeah, and if you'll notice um, on the staff analysis sheets on that page two, we want to strike the low pitch gable roofs from the guidelines because that's it's very explicit and there have been times where it's quite appropriate for the context. Instead, we propose it to say like gable roofs with an appropriate slope. Okay. And that way we can look at that surrounding context. And sometimes you want, especially with a carriage house and an alley where it's, you know, it's pretty tall in front of you with massing that low roof slope can really help bring that down yeah, i know we have people trying to do two-story carriage houses exactly and if they did a gable roof it would be taller than the main structure exactly this falls under both g12 and g16 do we need to add anything when you know replacing a deteriorated carriage house or carport um and it might be in here and i might just not be catching it but I guess I use myself as an example. I have a garage in my backyard, but I would have to, I guess if I rebuilt it in a different style from my own, I would have to push it more into the backyard, probably get a variance, have to set it back further than it is. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, do we need to add anything in there, like clarifying information about that setback? Like, like the, the, I guess it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to follow the original footprint. I'd have to add. So our clear. <laughs> Yes, 
clear as mud. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. Do we so need to add information? What in our there, guidelines say is that the, the setbacks along the alley and everything is that structure should be aligned mm -hmm. with the other structures in the alley. Um, now, in Old Louisville, for example, Limerick, where it's TNZD, that those setbacks pretty much follow our ours kind of closely. Okay. But like when you got out into the other districts, I mean, it might require a variance or something like that, but we would still look for it to be in line design-wise with the other secondary structures. It'd be helpful to have something in there about trying to align with original structure location to help with someone who is trying to build it back in the same spot yeah. when they're going for a zoning uh, adjustment. They could at least say, well, this guideline's telling me I should put it there and I would like to put it there and it used to be there and I just put it there. I'll just say I've been sat through more BOZA meetings than I wish to remember. They tend to respect decisions made with historic, you know, thought processes. So if there is a COA required and they get that first, the variance is as close to a rubber stamp as you can get. Unless there's a building code or some kind of neighbor that's concerned about the location not being appropriate. Are we happy there? Do we want to move on to new construction? Yeah. Start with commercial first. These really did not change very much. They're pretty explicit to begin with. Um, there are some wording tweaks here and there, but nothing that's hugely um, changing the intent of the guideline. One illustration comment has jumped out that the big X at the corner of Sixth and Main <laughs> would be. I remember it like that, and I also know what what I've worked on on that corner. You could maybe show before and after, right? Or there's you know six fourteen West Main is a infill that kind of is a modern building in a historic setting that doesn't try to look historic. So it's maybe a good example. It's won some future historic preservation award years ago. A weird illustration anyway. And the one on page three at the top right corner that has a check mark, it's not really clear what is the new construction there. <laughs> I didn't think the same thing on page one, what was clear of the new construction. Yeah. I'm like that building looks historic <laughs> to me. Just a box around something, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We can yes, we need to work on these illustrations. <laughs> yeah, what is new there? Interesting. The thing looks new there. Like, is the twenties building the new building, <laughs> <laughs> the new ish one? <laughs> Something I did want to point out. Um, let's see. 
in C22 talks about, um, it's on page two of your staff analysis sheets, if you're looking at those, um, where space is available and historic precedent shows use landscaping that is of a similar size and species to surrounding historic structures. Um, and talks about, of course, when doing plantings, consult Metro about right away and that sort of thing. Um, I think we need to work on this language like we talked about with the others that it's much more a suggestion. Um, I think certain areas it's certainly important to do some landscaping with infill, but there are other areas where you it would not necessarily be possible and that would be more regulated by the land development code than us. So I think like specific plant materials should reference back to land development code, but how plants are used as a design element could be related and incorporated here. Um, kind of like referencing, I don't remember if it was streetscape, but, um, or site, but it talked about like the placement of trees and not obstructing kind of facades of buildings and things like that. So mm -hmm. I think the specific tree could be land development code placement and use as a okay. kind of a design measure could be here. Like earlier, there was some mention of like native plants and things like that. Like that's probably somebody else's message. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess if there was a vacant lot in Cherokee Triangle and someone built a new house and every other house on the block had a nice big tree in the front yard, we would sort of expect that new house to also plant a tree in the front yard. Right. See land development code for a program tree. Yeah. Okay. So I think that wording needs some help and I think we can work on that to where it meets the intent of what you're saying and doesn't contradict. So I just don't want it to contradict with whatever else we regulate through all these processes. I'm sorry. Covering the green roofs with trees. Uh, that's in the sustainability, yep. So NC2 gets into the contributing and non-contributing um, and I don't know if this is the place to put it in or if it's demolition or is the better spot for it, but who that's determined by and whether a list is maintained, how often that gets updated. It talks about it much more in demo, so maybe it's just yeah. better to reference that section. I think we should focus that on demo, but please hold your bullet point there and let's talk about that because yes. you have a great thought there. Yes. And I'm not sure if that's in demo or not. So I think that that's something we definitely want to talk about. Uh, a concern that I had was that, let's see. I thought that NC 13, as it had been written, um, could lead to a lot of faux historicism because it really focuses on using a window of the right dimensions, proportions, and mutton configurations. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get into that. And then, um, you know, match the proportions of all of that to those on a historic structure. Well, on what historic structure, where? Like, I just, I feel like some of these things are a little loosey-goosey. And what we really want to focus on with staff is that we're focusing, again, on those adjacent buildings for context when you're developing your new construction. Because a lot of times you'll see a guideline that says, you know, fits the district as a whole. And it will, a district like Old Louisville has drastically different buildings from one end to the next. Same, I mean, West Main can be similar in certain places where some are quite taller, some are quite lower. So it. <laughs> yeah, this is like in the realm of design with a capital D and it's hard and you should hire professionals to help you. 
Um, <laughs> but I think regulating lines is maybe some language that would be in there because I think uh, historic infill often is trying to at least pick up on the scale of openings right. and where there are uh, regulating lines. Um, and this 20 uh, design vertical elements such as doors every 20 to 40 feet at pedestrian level, that seems a little prescriptive. I'm yeah. I think the word rhythm about could help a lot feet? here. Just, yeah. you know, the rhythm, rhythm of windows or openings. I think that your relationship of solid to void is good. That's yeah. leaves openness for design, but rhythm would help a lot too. Because that would tell you, you know, roughly how much the windows should be placed apart or how often the doors should happen. And that's typically, you know, when we're talking to people who are working on new construction, that's what we talk to them about is focusing on where are your where are your your lines horizontally and then where are your lines vertically when you look at the entire block. And it doesn't have to match perfectly, but if you're within those realms, then it's not gonna look odd. Yeah. Yeah. Then be as mod I mean, we want it to be as modern as somebody wants, but you know. As long as it follows those planes. Um, NC6, you have a bullet point that says orient a main entrance to the corner. Is that an always? Is that a consider orienting a main entrance to the corner when you have a corner building? Does construct commercial properties on a vacant corner lot to be built out to the corner property lines, orient a main entrance to the corner? Oh, I think they're trying to say that it should if it's a corner commercial but that should be more explicit That's but again right. is that in not all even, ways yeah it's not even historically correct like right yeah. a lot of corner buildings have okay. the entry in the center yeah. of the building yeah okay not on the corner. consider i think is a, a way to do that again leaves open for design yeah and to your point it might not be appropriate in all circumstances On page six, the illustration probably that's so old that it doesn't show the pickleball courts where we demo the buildings. <laughs> so we should probably not show that. Okay. Yep. NC six, or sorry, NC 10, which is on page six of the purple. Yep. It talks about do not design a new building with a scale that conflicts with the historic character of the district. Again, I think there may need to be some reference to edge conditions of districts. I know we had a situation yes. with Butchertown where it yes. faced Main Street, but technically was in the Butchertown district. And those are two very different scales. And we spent a lot of time talking about, well, folks wanted to just talk about things within the district, which didn't account for across the street because that was technically not in the district, but that was part of the context. Context matters, yeah. And I think that that's also where we need to go. We, as your staff, need to go through again and, and focus on those adjacent context instead of district-wide because that's been not helpful. And I think that that's one, to your point, that could help with some of that more focus of the surrounding context. And yeah, because I think districts are yeah. always defined with a lot of specificity at the time that they're defined, but that doesn't mean that that's the edge, that the, the world ends at the edge of the district, because we go back and revisit districts and enlarge them sometimes. Right. And edit them, so. 
broader context is important. I mean, that would be one that you could maybe show a 3D massing of that building because they they lowered some stuff on the Butchertown side, kept it taller on the Main Street side. Yeah, might be a true. good illustration. The next one, NC-17, talks about, you know, designing a roof to be compatible with neighboring pitches, but what the consultant had put in here was a bit too specific than what we would like, and so we recommend removing some of the things so that you had more of that design flexibility, depending on your context and also the design of your building. If you have a super modern building, I don't know that I need a corner store entry with a steeply pitched roof and exposed rafters and, like, <laughs> You know. <laughs> Thanks for getting rid of the uh, avoid the use of ornamental pierced concrete masonry screens. I know. <laughs> I know. I love them. And so do I. <laughs> I mean, and that's what we talked about last month too, is that sometimes glass block and picture windows and, and things like that, that are kind of more modern elements are appropriate. Are it's appropriate. just, yeah. So when you do a blanket, don't use any of these. That's a little. Do your carpeting. Carpeting <laughs> 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 in Paris town. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people moving to that. Yeah. <laughs> NC21, the second bullet point, consider incorporating landscape into parking lots, into larger parking lots, 20 spaces or more. That's really more of a land development code thing. Yeah, so we recommended altering that one, that landscaping must follow the requirements there of the land go. development code, because I don't, yeah, again, I don't want to be contradictory. And what was NC42 on page 10, you know, it says it didn't get incorporated, do not build additional surface parking lots within the West Main district. I don't know why it's specific to West Main, NC44 was that way too. Yeah, I don't know why it's that specific to West Main. And that was something that we wanted to talk to you all about when we got to demo is the idea of demolishing for surface parking period, because that was something we had discussed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe, I don't personally, I don't think that they fit here. I think they're kind of odd. So is that a demo question more than a. Not really new construction, right? I mean, if it's a vacant lot, it's probably already kind of used for parking, right? There's an example in Limerick, I guess that corner building that was demoed. Mm -hmm. Is grass. Now. It's just grass. Yeah. And I mean, we don't we'll be able to put a parking lot on it. Yeah, that, especially, I mean, that one was an emergency demolition. We don't require you to build something back. When right, but would we, yeah. if they wanted to, put, if someone wanted to put a parking lot there, what would, what would our regulations do? What would our COA do? It's a good That'd test case. New construction or would it be site? Should it be site usually? Yeah. Because then you have the wall, you have the fencing, and then it would be heavily dictated how it is designed by the land development code. So where it's landscape islands and things like that, land development code generally requires buffer from the parking as well. So that would be something we would review. What is that wall buffering? What's the fencing? What's the? Might be worth including some guidance in here in addition to land development code for smaller parking lots that 
may not kind of fall into chapter 10 as tightly. And I would note that with parking areas, waivers are available. I, if, if there's something that you're trying to protect, I wouldn't rely entirely on zoning to cover that. I mean, there are requirements for buffers. You can't just put a parking lot anywhere, and most our districts are zoned residential, so that's going to be a major hurdle for them anyway. But if they can do it, um, while they're regulated and there's landscaping requirements and things like that, what we find is some people don't put the landscaping exactly where we would prefer it to be, and they still check the box of zoning of just the square footage. So. I mean, if you're truly concerned with screening the parking or breaking it up, it would be nice to have it in both spots if we can make a case that that's historically relevant. Maybe that should go in the site guidelines. Maybe we can look at some additional parking design guidelines, parking lot design guidelines. I mean, because that could also be for the parking area you put at the back of your building yeah, on an alley per se. Thinking of like Clifton, I know Clifton has separate guidelines, but a commercial district is what I'm trying to think of in my brain. West Oak and Old Louisville, you know. Or even if you have a vacant site and you're building a new commercial structure, but there's a parking area at the back. Right. For some reason. While back there was a case in Butchertown that was that building demolished for a parking lot. Yep. Tributing, but. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's look at I'll, let's look at that. I might reach out to some of you all about how to frame some of that. Looking at you, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> NC23 talks about stormwater management. I know you say it's kind of in site design, but stormwater management isn't always just plants. Um, it is sometimes yeah. tension basins and structures and things like that. So it might be helpful to okay. leave that. Leave in. it there. Yeah, absolutely. good with commercial we can transition into residential and similar to commercial it had some similar changes um, wording things and we of course then went through and deleted some things that we felt like with like I mentioned with commercial that we felt was pushing toward faux historicism like a note that red brick is the most common mason material found in Lovell's preservation districts. Well, I don't necessarily want you to build out of red brick per se. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> so we just kind of recommended removing some of those things that could lead to that sort of faux historicism. And again, it's the same comment. We want to focus the language on immediate context, not district as a whole context for infill. And then one of my comments we already addressed of moving all the garage stuff out of here and over to garages. And the demo stuff to the demo section. Yes. Would we still leave something in the new construction for residential saying, please refer to the guidelines for garage, carriage house, all yeah, just, yeah. okay. Yeah, I think we can do that. I think we can have a note in there there's 
in new construction commercial, there was a note very similar to that where it said, see the sign design guidelines for your new sign for your building. So I think we can follow that sort of suit and do that for garages. And we can do it for demo too, just to make sure that you're flagged, you need to go over here. You kind of cover the context question with your notes on NR1 saying, you know, design infill construction to be compatible with average height. Right. The note about contributing structures, I don't know. And that's one of those things that's always been in the guidelines. And do we want to leave it there? Or do we just want to say, see demo, see the demolition guidelines, you know? Well, but this is new construction, design infill. So that's like saying you have a vacant site and you should. Oh, design sorry, I thought you were talking about NR2. Sorry. Yeah, NR1. So, you know, design it to the average height and width of surrounding contributing historic structures. So if you're, what if you don't have any historic right. structures yeah. and you're in the district, but there's none adjacent to you? So then can we just talk about, do we want it to be surrounding historic structures? Do we just want to be surrounding structures? I mean, how do we want to adjacent context, building context? You could add surrounding contributing historic structures and or, or surrounding context or something okay. just to kind of leave that open. Because I think of Limerick specifically, that's probably one of our districts that has the most vacant lots. And we do get applications for infill there. And that is also a district that has a wide variety of building shapes, styles, heights, you know, all on one block. Are there any um, sort of potential new districts that we should also be considering? I have been talking to people about possible districts. I don't know if any of them will ever come to fruition, um, but they tend to be more modern in age than like Cherokee or Old Louisville, Butchertown, Butchertown's old, um, 20s to 60s. Probably. And based on our conversations, I don't know if all of them would be comfortable with the standard design guidelines. They might go their own way. Right. Similar to Clifton. Um, so we'll see how that goes if they move forward. Yeah, if their period of significance is. The, what's that? If their period of significance is more recent, a lot of these things are not really that as applicable. Right. right really rooted earlier or even somewhere in between I, I think of like a germantown schnitzelberg type mm -hmm. of era falls somewhere between those two well and those are and bringing up those those are areas that have already seen a lot of change kind of like clifton that's why clifton wanted to do their own guidelines because they were areas that had already seen so much change and um some of the changes that we recommended to you all specifically for windows siding reflect those so that when you do have properties that might have already seen a lot of change you can then regulate from there rather than keeping them to something that's never been touched like that so 
Sam, I should know the answer to this, but it, um, on NR2, uh, do not demolish a contributing structure in a preservation district to make way for new construction. What are the allowances for, I guess what I'm trying to avoid is vacant structures. And so what are the allowances if the contributing structure is so far gone that yeah. it to be repaired, it's just, yep. you know where I'm going? So we get into that with demo a little okay. bit. So let's okay. hold your question for there, okay. but that also gets into economic hardship, which we can okay. talk about too. Yeah, I just mm -hmm. want to make sure we're not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like that new Main Street case. Yes, like Jackie Green's economic hardship case. Um, and the demo guidelines provide, which we'll talk about some different parameters than what we currently have, which I think help with some of that. I just want to ask a question. In our 19, the consultant had suggested that if raised foundations are not feasible, use a simulated raised foundation. And we just deleted that, but I'm not even sure in my brain how that would function. That just be like a stone base before you start your brick kind of thing? I think of it like my house. I have a concrete basement, but it's half out of the ground, and my side door is halfway between the first floor and the basement so you walk through the 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 foundation wall yeah but to me that's still a raised foundation to some it extent is a raised foundation it's yeah. visible because yeah, what we don't is what we tell people who come in with you know new designs and or come in with siding is that you know your siding can't go all the way to the ground especially right. with garages like addition, your siding just can't go all the way to the ground that. you have to have a terminus and then even I'm if like, you're a slab on grade, we want you to stop that a little bit short and put something more durable at the yeah. ground level, basically. Exactly. I mean, that's sort of simulated, though. That That's what I think of as yeah. simulated. Okay. Yeah. I just think it's such an odd phrasing to me that I was, like, immediately went to, like, a trailer at a trailer park with, like, metal skirt. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm, yeah. like, simulated foundation or something like that. And that's so it's, where that probably came from because yeah. we do have a similar provision for factory built housing to have the look of a foundation because the foundation under building code is what the building sits on right so if it comes up over that it's technically not the foundation that's true yeah and just the parging you can yeah 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 huh. um savannah NR22, talking about uh, garage carriage house, yes. I mean, it's already repeated. I'm thinking about if we can make the document as small as possible. Yes. I don't think that. And I still think uh, the term use a smaller single garage door yeah. opening that need to be look at, uh, be consistent with that. I, I, I think. I don't remember ever seeing a triple door opening. Have you? I mean, yeah. I I don't think I've ever I, seen a triple door. I don't think I've seen one either. I, think uh, I definitely I think have. that is. Yeah. I have on a dog walk in the last week. Really? Yeah, in Cherokee Triangle. That is, but I think double door is more standard now. Well, it's taller um, too, potentially. Like when people have larger vehicles or boats and things. Boats, you know. Yeah. Huh. Maybe it wasn't in the triangle. It was probably outside the triangle. Giant. There's yeah. big garage doors out there. Maybe that's like the entire elevation part today. We just <laughs> I'm parking my yacht. I... One wordsmith thing on NR15. 
The third paragraph is about designing new ports so that the floor is even with or maximum one step down below corresponding floor. And so that recommend the... deleting that. Okay, good. And with... deleting all the bullet points below that, except for the very last one, which is design a rear or side porch that is visible from the public right to be subordinate in character to the front porch. Thank you. Okay. Because that again, it's new construction and I it I feel like it leans too closely to faux historicism and Just occurred to me, and maybe it belongs in sight. Um, swimming pools we don't mention at all. So the ordinance says that anything at grade or below in the rear yard is out of our purview. What if someone tries to put in a if they have a sloping lot and it's half in half? I mean, the container pools are yeah. like a thing. So we usually regulate if they have to put in walls around their pool, their okay. fencing. Okay. So we look at that stuff, but like. They're paving because usually a lot of them are at grade. Sure. So we don't look at the paving at grade or anything. We don't regulate that. We don't regulate your rear sidewalk or anything. Okay. So, but yeah, if it becomes a structure, that's when we would, okay. that's when we do review. That spelled out ever that we say we, we don't look at this, anything below grade. Is no, it it's really just that line in the ordinance that talks about at grade or below is outside okay. of the purview of a COA. I mean, it is outside of the a CO, of requiring a COA. Um, but we do construction review calls us in and we, I look at a lot of polls. Okay. <laughs> just to make sure there was one in the triangle that tried to go in and they couldn't get through an alley or something oh. like that. And they had to remove part of a garage and yeah. I don't think it'll be a trend. We just had a front yard pool proposed in Nulu as well. <laughs> yeah, a front yard pool. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. We didn't think about the Jolie that. site. So yeah. I don't know if we need to regulate that issue here, but where they can go. Yeah, if that sparks interest elsewhere, that's for site. There you go. <laughs> front yard pool. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what about the little pop-up above ground ones though? Do those get treated as like if somebody complains it goes uh, Yes, cuz you generally they build Sometimes they build decks around them. Yeah. So, that, so we'll review. Yeah. They're, yeah. If they build the deck, yeah. the deck clearly requires a permit. The yes. pop up kind of pools you can buy online yeah. are technically not a structure. They're like a trampoline. Um, they're, it's not we don't really have a mechanism to cite them unless they never remove them. Then we can argue they're a de facto structure because they're not temporary. But if they truly use them in a temporary manner, I think. There's nothing we can do from a zoning preservation standpoint. Maybe property maintenance has some regulations. I'll look at Robert, but he's ignoring me. <laughs> and maybe it hasn't become a thing. I'm just surprised we haven't gotten more complaints about stuff like that. I mean, they have them in Clifton, in certain parts of Clifton. Yeah. And it's just always been like, we review the deck. We review, you know what I mean? Like the normal pieces that we usually see. Yeah. Been busy during COVID.
think that's pretty much all. And any comments that you made, again, during commercial, we can make sure, because there are some guidelines that carry over between commercial and residential, like stormwater, things like that. So we'll make sure that those are mirrored. The landscaping, you know, that sort of, those sorts of guidelines we can make sure are mirrored between your comments from the previous one too. You want to move to demo? So the demolition guidelines have changed quite a bit. Um, they are structured differently as well, where you have demolition of a contributing structure, demolition of a non-contributing structure, or demolition of a non-contributing alteration, so like an addition or something like that, before it then goes into economic hardship. Um, and for demolition, it, it provides better parameters. So it has the guidelines that we've always had that D1 always has the do not demolish anything contributing and, and unless, you know, it will not adversely affect, it will not adversely affect again, and the proposed replacement will strengthen the district as a whole. So those have always just kind of been our sole demolition guidelines for contributing structures. So those have carried over as written essentially. But then what has been provided is um, some more guidance on how to follow that through. So then you have a heading of significance. So as an initial step, determine the significance of a building. Analysis should be undertaken to determine if a building still has its integrity. Um, because some buildings, as we know, identified as contributing may not be, or we might have the converse where something that was originally non-contributing has now aged or become contributing. So that we now have a guideline that talks about considering that current significance of the structure then you also have condition. So that gets into what Commissioner Owen was asking about is that physical condition of the building. So you should also consider the condition of the structure. Um, is it deteriorated beyond repair? Is it in too poor condition? And so then it talks about this may require the services of a structural engineer, contractor, or other design professional. So we already, in demo cases, we generally request that applicants hire a structural engineer and have them assess the building. There have been times where we've taken it to committee without that just because, you know, that's sometimes what you have to do. Um, the next heading is then thinking about the impact on the street and the preservation district as a whole. So then that gets into if this building is demolished, how will what's remaining be affected by that demolition? So those are some three guidelines there to think about. And then you go into the nature of the proposed development. So consider the future utilization of the site, consider the development, and that helps you kind of frame that third bullet point of will the new development strengthen the viability of the district? And this is where you can weigh that in. And then D9 is essentially the exact same thing as D1, which I thought was kind of odd. Um, so we'll have to work on some judging there, but that is, the new guidance for a contributing structure, which I think is a lot more helpful. And it's honestly what a lot of us do already, but now there are clear guidelines that show and require you to think about these things and look at these things and how you approach it. And the thought is the D7, consider the future utilization of the site. Is this where we could add a bullet point about 
creating open space, parking spaces, things like that in where it might not be appropriate. So that's something we had discussed in the new construction guidelines where they talk about specifically just West Main Street. But as we all know, we've had other cases recently where it's demo of a historic structure for a parking area. And so that's something we can think about here. Yeah, that might apply to impact on street and preservation district too, because they're basically saying, don't take away a building and put back not a building. Right. We'd rather the building be there, I mean, the mass of the building. You know. So I think that that's where we can add, a, if that's what you all want to do, we can add some sort of bullet point here about that. And I think, again, it needs to focus on the surrounding historic context of, is that appropriate or not appropriate? Yeah, I think the like the house that's next to the Clifton Center is a good example. Um, it was, I mean, it's deteriorating. They bought it. They wanted to tear it down and put a um, uh, a, a playground, I yeah. guess, which would be a contributing neighborhood. Because the Clifton Center is now a school. So what used to be the Clifton Center is now a school. Right. And the house doesn't fit with the neighbor. It doesn't match the neighboring houses. They were all these X's, but... Yeah. should be gone, but it's not. So I think that that house has a different approach when you review it now that you have all these other considerations yeah, that's potentially. What yeah. um, so that's what I do like about how they've changed these guidelines, what they've proposed, just more parameters for us to, and more to sink your teeth into rather than just one, two, three. Yeah. They're very open and. Even on the one, two, three, I, I think it was always confusing that two, ends in the word and, which implies that two and three must be mm -hmm. together, but one seems like it can stand alone. Should mm -hmm. that one also end in and, that all three of these conditions must be met to demolish a contributing structure? I think that's something that you all have to decide. Is that an and or an or? Or an and or. Or an and or. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Please don't do an and or. <laughs> and then, well, and I guess it also says if you say and to the first one, could you take one and three or two and three, or does it have to be one, two, and three? Yeah. So to that, how would you all like to, what do you all think about that? How would you like to see that? I mean, one and two are kind of saying similar things. And, and neither one really references integrity. Right. Kind of dances around it, but it doesn't actually say that word. I think item two feels like it's trying to say, even though we're in contributing historic structure territory, that, that maybe the thing you're trying to demo is not contributing because it's not, not part of this unified entity. I don't know. Weird, weird territory. Number one almost sounds like it wants to refer to an individual landmark instead of a district, because two really talks about districts. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of Dream Hotel case. Not that we went there, but if if they were saying, let's just demo the whole building completely, mm -hmm. 
what came up was well that that may make the whole district no no longer valid because it's that important within yeah. as a defining feature i think that's what it's trying to guard against with this no, there, there might be a way to combine bullet point one and two then the and would make more sense that both of those would have to be taken at the same time okay I think that's what I always struggled with, it, at least, was number three, that it says re proposed replacement structure. So in some of the cases where we had something demolished for a parking lot, is a parking lot a structure? Yeah. And that's up to interpretation, maybe, but. Well, if it's, I mean, if it's paved, we typically would consider that a form of structure, I guess, because it requires a permit. But if it's gravel. But it's, it goes back to it's at and below grade, which we don't get into, you know? Only in the rear yard. So if it's the whole property. Right. Okay. We do at grade. Okay. But gotcha. if it's rear yard. Rear yard. Okay. Yeah. That was to let people do patios and things. And yeah. we didn't have to constantly. Like, sure. Um, Savannah, how do we historically or in the past interpretate um, will strengthen the vitality of the district as a whole. Say we have a garage. I'm not talking about the primary building, like the secondary building, a garage. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's historic, but, you know, I can name quite a few in Olu. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it may, may not, but, but if it's taken down, uh, right now it's not being used for anything probably rather than just some storage. Uh, take it down, create it either garage or not, or especially adding accessory dwelling to it. Mm -hmm. Will that be considered strength in the web because you're adding more housing, more, more density, more people live in the district, more people are gonna use the commercial. Will that be considered a strength in the vitality replacing like a little storage shed with a housing unit uh, could be with a garage, with or without a garage that people can really use. I think that that's a good example of how you could use that number three. Absolutely, is that the current structure is not serving the district as it's intended. Maybe it is just a like a garage, not like an auto garage place where they fix your car, but maybe it's literally just a garage building on Cherokee Road that faces the main street. You could demolish it, put a new house on it. And then you're strengthening the district as a whole. I mean, but that are, garage could be a historic structure. Could be, but not being used, or you know, at all it's, might not serve the purpose. I don't know. That's right, throwing that out there. But it, I mean, there are situations where there is a historic building, but it might not be the best thing for the district. You just gotta have to, like you said, the Clifton case Center case. case. I mean, you could make the argument that a playground or a park for the neighborhood is strengthening the vitality of the neighborhood more than a vacant demolish, you know, deteriorating yeah. structure. Is it the neighborhood or the district? Yeah, true. One in the same. <laughs> Some places. Sometimes. Yeah. We do have some individual landmarks that are multiple buildings, right? Yes. Okay. So this would be one of theirs too, that if you had an individual landmark that had an outbuilding that I guess could be technically contributing, but taking it away does not affect that individual landmarks integrity. 
when looking at it from an individual landmark lens that you just did, number three is kind of odd the way that it's worded because I think that needs just some to add landmark there. And, yeah, because maybe you, you can have a landmark site, like you said, that can have a couple of structures on it, but removing one of those wouldn't necessarily, potentially, depending on what it is theoretically, harm the landmark itself. Right. Or the site, the landmark site itself. Do we need specific verbiage about individual landmark? Because if we've we've raised something to the level of a local individual landmark, I think we want to be even more careful with things, right? Mm -hmm. Not just say, oh, well, you could demo that. I know we, we thought it was great and we've landmarked it, but now you want to put a hotel where there was a garage and it's going to be more strengthening the vitality mm -hmm. of the district. Feels feels like at the individual level, maybe needs some more. Only teeth. because the there's such a wide gap between individual and district, mm -hmm. the way we landmark things. So we could have individual landmarks that have 20 or 30 buildings on them, like a campus, that maybe it's not detrimental to the landmark to do that. Yeah, I want to be very careful that we don't allow people to use landmarks designation as, and we've seen it some as a defensive measure because they don't like the new development that's coming. So I think I'm just, I'm, 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 a, I'm in favor of landmarks designation for landmarks, but I'm opposed for somebody trying to use a landmarks designation because they just simply don't like what's coming, even though it probably meets all the regulations. Well, and if you think about a site like Riverside, for example, now I know the visitor center is not historic or contributing, but pretend it is. Pretend all of those are historic structures, but you need a new visitor center for the continued use of the site, for the continued interpretation of the site, for the, I mean, the, the money making so that they can continue to preserve the site, you know, all of those little things, then I think that's where you get to this, the new development can be beneficial and you might have to lose something that one structure, not like the main structure, not the house, not, you know, but one of the contributing structures might have to go in order for what is truly what you say is the landmark to be able to remain preserved and in use. So I think that's where we can play with this wording a little bit to try to. And that's really what integrity contemplates. It, it thinks through all of that stuff, what you're losing, what you're getting back, what's the primary, secondary, tertiary structure. So I think for individual landmarks, we can look at that language to where adding it in number three to where it makes sense, but it applies to a, like a specific isolated site. We can work on that. On the significance piece, I know we go through this a lot of, you know, it's usually staff first that determines significance. Mm -hmm. um, if there is no list of contributing, non-contributing structures in a district, um, but we kind of talk about both that a property could lose its significance or it could gain significance over time. And sometimes those are tough cases to make the call. So I don't know if we've talked about that we need to be updating our lists 
maybe every 10 years or something and reconsidering buildings and districts to evaluate for significance before things come up. And we started that 100 structures list. That's yeah. a list that's yeah. more than 100 structures, but it's like that, that's a resource that we've put time into to say experts have looked at this and here's a list of things we're considering. So that should somehow be referenced. And in our older districts don't have okay. contributing, non-contributing at all. Right. Old Louisville doesn't have that. Cherokee doesn't have that. Limerick doesn't have that. Don't even think West Maine is modern enough, even in its update to have that. So a lot of our districts don't have that at all. What's contributing, what's not contributing. It's really just Butchertown and Clifton that have a list like that because they were more modern in age. And I don't know if that's a CLG grant that the state can help us out with to go out and kind of resurvey some of these districts and take a look at it, but one district at a time. Yeah, <laughs> I know it would be a, a huge effort, but it, it would clarify. Yeah, some of the issues that come up fairly often. Well, it has the potential to do that because I think it's also important that those lists are tools because mm -hmm. conditions change. Yeah. So I don't want anyone to have a list like that and be like, well, this is hard and fast. This is what this is. You can't change it. You can't say that because And it also doesn't say, and this gets to your question earlier, um, Commissioner Ackerman, it doesn't say, it says analysis should be undertaken, determine the significance of a structure. It doesn't, who, who does that? Because the applicant will be like, look, I looked at this. Yeah. This is, <laughs> you know. So I don't know if you all want a little more guidance there as to how this should be done. I mean, I know we know internally how it's done, but these are for the public, so. That gets a little into process, but not too far outside the realm of process. Well, I mean, it's if you want anything to be more concrete, more enforceable, you probably want it to be in the guidelines adopted by council because anything else will have to flesh out by policy or in the bylaws, which wasn't necessarily reviewed by council, which could open it up to a little bit more challenge. But it's sort of a a tree process first reviewed by staff, then looked at by the ARC, then reviewed by the commission potentially, and then the council on top of that. Well, not not for demo, not Metro no. Council. Okay. Mm -hmm. It'd be court. After you all, it goes to yeah. court. But to that point, you know, if there are differing opinions, how does that get mm -hmm. flushed out? Do you all want something like that in there or do you want to leave it this kind of passive language open to interpretation? I don't know if it makes sense to have something like staff will make a report on this, but all parties involved in a matter also have the right to retain their own analysis or, you know. Just like giving some power to staff here is a good thing because someone can come in and say, well, it's not significant. 
I'm, yeah. I don't think it is, but you'd want the staff who are historic preservation officers to say, well, but but it's on the list. It is, or it is because it's on my professional credential yeah, that professional. I, I believe it is. And then uh, the uh, applicant could bring in their expert that says, well, I dispute that and that's fine. And then you have that discussion, but yeah. we'd want to at least push towards the staff having the first review of it because they're credentialed for it. Even sometimes for structural reports, we often see somewhat competing structural reports on different things. Professionals don't always agree. Correct. <laughs> I don't always agree with all other architectural historians either. So, I mean, it's just name of the game. Do you think on the condition on D3, um, should add something in there about integrity because if a building's condition deteriorates so far, it has lost its integrity. Yeah, because integrity would definitely, you're right, come in under significance, but then also come in under condition. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if this is a minor thing, but I circled the word last under D4. D4? Uh -huh. Last remaining positive example. <laughs> it's quite the phrase. It does say one of the last, but. Yeah, like, are we going for endangered species? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Threatened. <Yeah. sighs> okay, let's work on that. Not to beat a dead horse, but I think uh, D7, consider future utilization of a site, kind of conflicts with D1, talking about proposed replacement structure. Mm -hmm. So I just think we have to say, is it utilization? Is it a structure? What is a structure? So what about under D1, it's the proposed replacement development, and we leave structure out of it. That way it gives... I'm not sure a structure is always the best case scenario, depending on a context. I mean, nine times out of 10, it probably is, yeah. but you're going to have that one to where, you know, a structure doesn't always make sense. Maybe a park or a playground or something like that makes sense. So if number three, we took out, we just said the proposed replacement development, because the development can include a multitude of things, structures, et cetera. What do you think about that? In zoning world, development is a very broad term that would include virtually anything you do on a property. Yeah. So a park, a playground, just any use would probably fall under development, redevelopment. We did have a case where somebody at JCPS wanted to remove a historic structure for a playground, and so it could happen, and in that case, it might have been appropriate. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is like stronger language that's for de demolition, the site must have a proposed utilization. Yeah. 
and oftentimes, you know, we allow temporary things if it's a if it's a necessary demolition, it can temporarily be a grassy field, but we need to have some teeth in there about proposed utilization. And is this where you want to talk about? And that might be the place to put in, yeah, what utilizations are appropriate in different areas, like demolishing a building for a park is one thing, demolishing it for a parking lot or just a grassy field may be another. And they don't have to be shells. They don't have to be hard and fast. They could be should determined by surrounding content. You know what I mean? Like, but it's in writing to say we're discouraging. Yeah. And then I would also like to take out economic hardship from this guideline altogether, because I think that that's something that needs to be a separate animal that we research, we rewrite, we do on a different day, and this just be a demo guideline. And then we can come back with an economic hardship guideline that is separate, and then it doesn't get confused. I mean, this is much better organized than our current one, which is very confusing. So, um, I just would I, like to recommend that we do that. That seems to make a lot of sense. When I read this, one of the things I wrote was it seemed like the process. We used to have a flow chart. We used to have a flow chart. This yeah. doesn't have a flow chart. And right. I think somewhere it says you have to apply for economic hardship at the beginning. But not, and then somewhere else it says, and if you're denied, then you apply for economic hardship. Yeah. Like, okay, well, which is it? Flow like, chart's need, been wrong yeah, for it's, years. It's like, I, I don't know. Which do I need an accountant no. now? Or like, you have to get denied first? or do you Yeah, so you go to ARC and you get denied. And then within 10 days of the denial, you can apply for economic hardship and come to you all. Okay. But we have allowed people to file the economic hardship as well as an appeal to you all. Like, you can, appeal, you can also appeal an ARC decision right. or you can apply for economic hardship. And we've let someone apply for both and then figure out, because that deadline is real tight. And then you have for economic hardship, you have to compile a lot of paperwork and do a lot of analysis. So then if you come back later and you're like, hey, this is what I want to do. Well, you've missed that deadline. So we've let people apply for both and then figure out which path is. The best for them. There are a couple guidelines I wanted to note under the demolition um, that are missing and they're the old DE5 and DE6 and it's about, you know, regrading the land or keeping the topography the same as it is adjacently after demolition. So an approved demolition, what you do with the site afterwards. So if it's not immediately going to be constructed, let's regrade the land or let's take steps to reestablish a street wall. And that's, I think that that speaks to some of those temporary measures we've allowed people to do while they're then going through the rest of the process for their new construction. So there's just some guidelines that are missing that I think are beneficial to have back in because I think that this assumes that as soon as you take something down a new thing's going back up and we all know a development process is not that fast so when you say you wanted to I forgot exactly how you said it but I get rid of the economic hardship exception 
and then bring it back. Or I, I think I was confused as to what you meant about. So I so in the new demolition guideline, I would like for it just to be demolition guidelines and remove the economic hardship from this guideline. And next year, the next once we have these approved by Metro, Metro Council, of course, we have to work on illustrations, but I want us to do a lot of research into what other cities are doing with economic hardship. And then we can rewrite that process, or at least if we keep it exactly the same, it's rewritten to be a clearer, smoother process um, because it's the way it is currently written is very vague and I think not very helpful. But um, if we do that, aren't we now have aren't we then having a period of time where we don't have an economic hardship exception? That's a question for Travis, I guess. <laughs> have the current so Travis, we're talking about in the new proposed demolition guidelines, it says demolition and economic hardship. If we remove the economic hardship from the new demo guidelines and Metro Council just approves the new demo guidelines, are the old economic hardship guidelines still in place until we replace those? And this is probably where it'd be helpful for me to have a binder. <laughs> um, so are you talking about removing them from their existing location? Completely? I think what yes. Metro Council would have to do is concurrently with adopting the new ones, kind of get rid of the old ones. They could do a stay of execution on the economic hardship and say those ones still continue until we replace them. But this is unlike a normal strike through an underline, Travis, that we normally do where we clearly show what we're deleting. We're pretty much implying that the whole the old ones are being deleted in their entirety and replaced with these. The question is, how do we frame it the Metro Council that those ones should continue to be applicable until they're replaced? The old guidelines entitled economic hardship exemption and guidelines for demolition. And we're like, Flipping the script on that and saying, no, we're really focusing on the demo and we'll get to the economic hardship. Could they be yeah, a separate can we, section in the current one? That's what I was going to say. Can we just move them temporarily to a separate section and then, and then rewrite right. that section? If you, if you delete that section and move it somewhere else later, that's fine too. That would be the cleaner alternative. The as is in a new section. And I guess I have a question. Currently, economic hardship only applies to demo new construction. But I know a lot of times in ARC cases, we look at it or we consider it in window replacements and new materials and things like that. So that's something we can talk about when we look into it. Because when we redid the ordinance in 2018, um, 2019, um, we had talked about including that in. But the ordinance currently just says economic hardship is for demo and new construction. But that was something... The subcommittee of the commission had discussed at that time, and we just didn't end up including it. Ow, just pinch myself. Um, so I think as we do this research, it's something we can look into and see if there's maybe a different process for demo new construction versus if you all even want to do economic hardship for just a general other guideline. Um, so that could be part of the research that we do. It's something we consider, but I would never expect someone coming and presenting two different window options to have all this annual cash flow, real estate taxes no. stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's why I'd like to take a time and look at what other cities are doing. Um, we did that very briefly when we did the ordinance change, but we were focusing more on the designation process and less on economic hardship process at that time. So we did a little research, but not enough. Um, and then come back to you all. And the same with demolition by neglect. 
I know that that's been a big topic and it's defined in the new demo guidelines, but it doesn't really, it's not regulated, of course, and it's not regulated in our ordinance. So that's another topic that along with economic hardship, we want to do some research in, see what other cities are doing, see what other regulations are out there, and then bring that back to you all to review, discuss, and see how we then want to proceed. Okay. So really just the demo guidelines are you have an application for demolition. Here's how you review it. And here's how we move forward from there. So what we're proposing they be right now. I think that would be helpful because then you could talk about different types of economic hardships too. Right. Doesn't it make more sense the demo by neglect lands in the demo section though? It does, but I mean, it could be that once we do that research, we then send the whole new demo section to Metro Council. Okay. And th th that might be a broader issue because these are the guidelines by which you review a COA. Demo by neglect, I'm going to assume that we're going to have to drag them into our office to apply for the COA. So while you should have some guidelines about how you ultimately respond to the uh, the proposal to improve the building that has been neglected, we probably need some ordinance changes that say how we enforce up to that point um, to get them to compel them to apply to improve the building because they're clearly not going to be asking for a COA just to keep the bad conditions. So we've we've got we have to get them to a point where they're doing something to stop you know the building from deteriorating or hopefully that's the case. And I guess they could just argue they could stop it by tearing the thing down. And that's where you probably need some thresholds. We talked about last time, I thought maybe having not a guideline, but some parameters of property maintenance that and, could go in there. And so you have the maintenance guidelines and the maintenance guidelines are really good for an educational tool right now. Right. But also, you know, we get people who apply for COAs for things that are maintenance. Yeah. So we do give them the guidelines so that they can because they do provide education, but it's not something that we necessarily regulate. However, if we start working on demo by neglect in the ordinance and we do some sort of enforcement or something, I think that's where the maintenance is potentially then an actual, not an educational tool, it's but an actual guideline. Yeah. So that's what we have to figure out. Wanted to get through this hurdle first, and then we'll get to that one. <laughs> Big steps on the non-contributing D10 and D11, 12, 13. It doesn't, I mean, in the header, it doesn't specifically say demo of non-contributing structure in a district. I guess that's kind of implied. Yeah. But if it's a non-contributing structure and it's not in a historic district. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I think, again, there's just clarifying, like, who determines that? How is that determined that it's a non-contributing? If we don't yeah, have so a list. Mirror some language, to... however we figure out how to do that, let's mirror some language to contributing as well. Yeah. Because we talked about adding in less passive language, so more about staff will determine, and then it goes here and there and everywhere. So then we can do the same for non-contributing. We don't really talk about anywhere um, 
the fact that we're a CLG and getting SHPO involved or NPS involved, is that something we often do or not necessarily? Not too often. They're not always interrelated. Yeah. I mean, if someone is wanting assistance, like with tax credits or something like that, that's when we rope them into a conversation. But we don't always ask Shepo to weigh in on is something contributing or not contributing or we, we just haven't done that. It doesn't mean we can't. It's just you have to think about are you then asking them to support your case as staff against an applicant or True. it's the perception of that. So how does that process then, how do they then come in and make a determination or weigh in or so it's something to think about. I'm just not sure where to put them in the Or process. would they even want to take a stance in a And maybe they wouldn't. Like I mean, and we're all somewhat appointed and, you know. <laughs> Are there any other thoughts about demo at all? All right, we've only got two left. Archaeology and our archaeologist isn't here. Um, but <laughs> Lori, <laughs> Lori has read through these. These are brand new. They are short and sweet. They mirror Clifton. And um, Lori is going to actually help us do some illustrations that kind of help. You know, you see an artifact, you know what an artifact might be. And so she's going to help us with some illustrations for this. And then also she had a recommendation that... Um, if something is found, like it mentions in here, something is found um, and that you're supposed to contact landmark staff, um, she wants that a SHPO approved archeologist writes a letter stating what was found and it just goes in the file. And that's just sort of an official archeological step that she would like to add in here. Since I'm not an archeologist, do we define artifact somewhere? I'm not sure this section actually has good definitions, which is something I had also thought about with Lori, having her help us define more. And I think that that's also what the illustrations will help do as well. And I wonder if we need to talk, if the word bones needs to be in here. Uh, yep. Bones, a historic object. <laughs> well, I would note, are we concerned about any bones or human remains? <laughs> right. More than we will probably find bones on yeah. most sites. Yeah, so maybe it's human remains. But, yeah. And I assume I think it's human. <laughs> I think in that case, like, we go with the letter of what's in, written. I'm not sure. the it's, true. it's true. And other municipalities, coroners are brought in for that. So I don't know what happens here if, like, you found a, a human, what looked like a human, or a bone. Like, if oh, someone yeah. found a bone, who do they call? They call Lori. They call the coroner. Yeah. Someone says that's a deer bone. So 
and this is what I keep posting. Lori's comments apply. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I know. I have no context for this. I mean, they're just, they're very straightforward. They're very basic. You know, you find something, just stop, call us. Let's have her go out there. It'll all be fine. I mean, that's what we do in Clifton. You know, it's not a big deal. So. I did appreciate there was one phrase about something like impacting schedule or cognizant of schedules and yeah. Like, don't hold it up for a year. Right. Dig, but no, it's, absolutely not. It's, let's let us know you're doing something. We'll come out as soon as possible. Yeah. When you find Indian artifacts or Native American artifacts, mm -hmm. what, that's different than finding bones. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what, I, yeah, once you, then that goes to kind of a, a federal, right? Not necessarily, no. Okay. Mm -hmm. Federal is only involved if federal money is involved. Okay. At a local level, it's just what we regulate. And so she lumps in, Lori has lumped in Native American artifacts along with historic artifacts. They're just all part of a list. You find archaeology, you stop and you call. And honestly, with most of our like day-to-day -day house sites, that's not a thing. It's been when we've had like large um, institutional redevelopment that we've had some of that happen that I know is specifically in Clifton because they're the ones that have had the guidelines that we've had Lori or Jay, used to be Jay Stopman, go out there and take a look. And because those are much larger sites that usually had other things associated with them. We just want to move on from there. <laughs> yeah. Is it worth um, adding a reference to archaeology in the demolition section too? Oh, that's a good point. During demolition to be on the lookout. Yeah. We could also do, we could do the and, and sort of like fall over, like see archaeology guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. New construction as well might be good to throw them in there. Okay. So, Chris, you said there was a, I can't find it, but there was a section where uh, it shouldn't unreasonably delay timeline. It it said it in there somewhere. I was trying to remember where I saw that. Well, I mean, I'm almost wondering if. So it's in the paragraph, it's in the occasionally paragraph. Okay. Yeah. In this scenario, so you find something. In this scenario, a project should be stopped immediately and staff called, blah, blah, blah. Project, so steps can document the resources with as little inconvenience to the property owner as possible. And the, I guess the scheduling thing was like, do um, notify of a work schedule when you're doing excavation, like let yeah. people know. Yeah, that's right. what it was. Well, I guess my concern would be, okay, We've notified you, but you're telling me you can't get anybody out to the site for 20 days, you know, or something like. Then to me, that's an inconvenience and, and is not an appropriate way to move forward because we don't have, I mean, these guidelines say do not disturb or destroy archaeological resources, but they also say as little inconvenience to the property owner as possible. So it's a, it's, it might want to think about how much direction do you want in there? Yeah, it's like you can't dig forever. Right. Yeah, that's, I wonder if you put a time. And there's a reasonableness clause, like, is two days reasonable or is five days? Is, you know, the only condition. It really would. Yeah. 
and the size of the project. And I mean, I can say just from experience in Clifton, it's been very quick. Okay. But that's not regulated anywhere. So I don't know how you want that to be. I think it's a work with staff thing. And then if it's not, yeah. you know, feasible, then you can kind of determine what's the best measures to take. It might be take some pictures and some notes and move, move on, depending on what it is yeah. that you found. Yeah. Yeah. Going to move to sustainability. So this is a brand new one, as you all are aware. Um, we need to work on the illustrations a little bit, um, but that's with all of them. Um, we actually shared these um, with Sumetta Rao. She's the director of the Mayor's Office of Sustainability. And overall, she said that she appreciated them. She added some information that she knew weren't things that we necessarily regulated, but tips, educational tips for people to be more sustainable and to make their historic properties more sustainable. So um, we already have some tips in here, like weather stripping and things like that. So we thought maybe like with illustrations and stuff, we could add some of the tips that she had recommended just to kind of keep this as the educational tool that it's meant to be. Um, she did point out one concern that she had and that was with guideline, I wrote it down somewhere, SB7, yeah, SB7, and it locate um, intergenerating technology to minimize impacts to historic character of the site and structure, locate it where it will not damage, obscure, cause removal of significant features or materials. She just felt that that, as someone outside of this profession, was too vague. And we're going to get people who are going to try to do things that we might not think are appropriate. So that was her concern. Because what she did not care for the, on the illustrations were that the solar panels were so far back on the residential house specifically. But she also understood why we wouldn't want them right on the front roof line. So she just thought maybe specific, more specific parameters could be good for homeowners was her recommendation. I think the biggest thing for this this section, and it's way out of my skis, but I mean, technology is going to really change well well before we upgrade these again. So there need we need to have something, and I don't know what that is, but this is something where the technology is going to evolve a lot faster and render some of these, you know. I could see where the solar panels become obsolete for solar shingles or, you know, there's just different things that are going to happen. So I don't know how we do that, whether it's we can, you know, get a allocation or clause where this can be readdressed and updated on some sort of as, as needed basis or annually. I, I just think we're going to see, I don't know what it's going to be, but I, I know we're going to see continued changes. Yeah. So I, I don't really know what I'm asking. <laughs> no, but it's a great point. And I, I do believe that the shingles and the panels are both addressed in here as our green roofs are addressed in here. Cause that was something she brought up. She's like, you're not going to see a lot of green roofs probably. And I was like, I know, but if someone applies, 
we have the guidance for them. Um, same with the shingles. She's like, right now that's a unstable technology. And I'm like, I understand, but eventually it may not be, you know, it might happen. Um, so to your point, going through here and making sure there's nothing that's too specific, too restrictive to one technology would probably be a good idea. I mean, it does kind of conflict. SB8 says install it in a reversible manner. I don't know that solar shingles are super <laughs> reversible very easily. Right. I mean, maybe that's something you just evaluate as a alternative material instead, if it gets to that level where yeah. it's emulating something that's existing, but. Like some of the technologies are such as things, and then the real emphasis is about kind of the, the view and kind of the, you know, when you're at the street level, like everything else. So yeah, it, it, we want to accommodate whatever that technology is. Around right now, um, there's some opportunities with site stuff as well. This all focuses mm -hmm. building. So I don't know if we want to get into that here or on the site, but well, and some of it is site in here with the freestanding wind turbine and the ground solar collectors, which are not mentioned in the site guidelines at all. Yeah. Can we add photovoltaic technology to our glossary as well? What photovoltaic technology? And this is just because I'm sure curious. That's terminology people use all the time now with the oh, EV. Oh, okay. But that yeah. we should define it. Yeah, yeah. The fact yeah. that you ask, yeah. it needs to be defined. Yeah. Um, has anyone asked to install a wind turbine on their property? <laughs> okay. I'm just curious. <laughs> to submit this point on the solar panels shown at the back only. Yeah. And I live in an historic area that's not a district and it has there's a house with a roof that comes towards the street with solar panels on it because it's south facing because that's where you want them so this would say you can't do that and that's what the illustration implies but then it's not what the actual guideline says the okay. guideline focuses on again just preserving low profile even if you notice the photos on page eight of the actual draft those solar panels are right up to the front of that roof now, again, it's a front gable roof, so they're not going to be highly visible when you're looking dead on from the front of the house, which is what we prefer. But it, again, that photo that even contradicts yeah. with the yeah, illustration. Totally so that was part of her point is that the illustrations needed a little. Um, some of the building could be very tall. Mm -hmm. Does this also apply to tall buildings has to be in the back? I mean, it may not be visible from the street um, level. And so what we would look for is basically that when you are looking dead on from the building, it's not what pulls your eye to it. So if it's not visible from the street at all because it's a five-story building, well, then you're good. Or like these front gable buildings that are the photos on page eight where you can only see them when you're standing at the oblique. I mean, to us, that's something we've approved for a long time because you can't help the way that your roof is formed. And, and so, yeah, we want to make sure that we're promoting that they can be in as many places as possible. Tree locations, you could have trees right. in the back instead of the front. I mean, right. shade. Like passive solar. Right.
And the guidelines are honestly, when it comes to placement, pretty vague. Avoid damage to significant features. Avoid obscuring significant features or adversely affecting the perception of the overall character of the property. I mean, they're pretty goosey-goosey so that you can have that ability to look at it as a case-by-case -case basis. We referenced the National Park Service information, but has this been cross-checked with that? So that they're all in line. It feels like we have kind of like, don't put them on the back or only put them on the back unless you put them on the front. I will double check that because I have not. I don't know what they say. <laughs> I do think more illustrations about uh, historic energy saving technologies would be good. Like you've got the double hung window for ventilation, but mm -hmm. things like awnings and porch overhangs and, you know, that's always the best place to start before you go introducing a bunch of new technologies. On page four, the illustration uses the words early for things. And I think it's meaning not the original, but you know, really old. Like they replaced the door in the twenties. So it's an early door. I'm not sure of that. I wonder if that's a Colorado they're out of Colorado. I, I don't know if it's what like that, a Colorado uh, like terminology. Is that like a storm door here kind of thing? So I think that, yes, I think illustrations can better show what we're trying to do. And are you all okay with the guidelines and how they're, I mean, they're pretty open just to allow for different things. And these are just like how we're assessing it. If someone brings a proposal Correct. to us, it's not like we're Correct. promoting this. We want you to do this on every building kind of thing. Correct. I wonder if we should ask the Office of Sustainability about particularly this the enhancing energy performance SB3 through 6. Feels like insulating walls is maybe the biggest bang for the buck, which has the least impact on the visual historic nature of things. And I don't know that it's. It well, and that's what she. So Sumetta had sent a big list of other things that are not things we would regulate. like insulation and walls and stuff like that, but they are suggestions of how to take an existing building and make them more energy efficient that we could add here. And that was something- I think that'd be good because I think people automatically go to like, well, I gotta, I'm gonna replace the windows. I'm gonna start there. Right. Like, well, but the wall is a lot of the wall of the situation too. Let's start at the wall too. So right. like pointing that up so your average homeowner knows that there's more than just windows to deal with. And she was talking also about, you know, the kind of light bulbs that you use and the kind of all of these other things that are things we would never really regulate that heavily, but are just great. Like you said, great tools of here are the other things you can do before you go into just, you know, I need to replace all my windows and doors. Because I do see this as a guiding document for when we have something to review, but also great information to share if we can share this sort of information multiple places you know she has brochures that she can share but we also have this information to share 
do you, I mean, on SP4, use operable systems such as storm windows. It, do we really, I don't think it's storm window. I would rather see a replacement window um, as long as it conforms rather than somebody adding a storm window. Well, that's two schools of preservation right there. Yeah. Right. Well, because you can do interior <laughs> storm windows. Oh, you can? Yeah, yeah. that are totally non-invasive to the exterior. So you okay. keep the original window and you get your energy efficiency. Yeah. It's a great point, though. Two, two, <laughs> two camps. There are two camps. <laughs> That's why we did windows first. <laughs> yep. Lots of window camps. How do you see this being used? Is it when somebody's asking for COA, or is it just more of like a brochure thing that gets <laughs> passed out to? I think folks? it's both. So it, it's kind of similar to our masonry guidelines. Like our masonry guidelines are really informational and they're very general maintenance. We don't have a lot of people that are asking us specifically how to tuck point their building. They're hiring someone to do it, but we give them the information of this is how you're supposed to do this. And so I see it as the same thing of people. I mean, people ask us and make comments. Well, my house is drafty or, you know, whatever. So I see this as a regulating tool, but also an educational tool that we can share. So it would be PDF form like it is here, like kind of a little book, if you will. If we're thinking about sustainability, you could almost add environmental hazards to this section too, or, you know, talking about lead paint and asbestos and you could. It's been in some other sections here and there. Yeah, but in siding, we talk about taking care with your lead paint and yeah. things like that. Yeah. But if we're doing a guidebook sort of thing, and this is the best place for that. Okay. Might be a spot. There is a four year safety box here. Oh, is there? That That's where that. I read it. Oh. Asbestos shingles lead paint. Okay. Let's yeah, one. Make that bold. For your safety. Yeah, there you go. But maybe just a little bit more. Reason I was asking that earlier question is I, I wonder if there's um, a lead off that just talks about one of the most sustainable things you can do is own a stork home mm -hmm. yeah. and maintain it as such. Mm -hmm. Technologies you have already. Okay. There's other things like stormwater. Yeah. I don't know if that's kind of a, a whole different thing, but. Where to put your rain barrels? Well, I mean, <laughs> if you're a resident, there's probably like minimal things, especially on a lot of these, the context of a lot of these neighborhoods. Other developments might be a little bit different, but. Well, it's something I thought about with site something. design, like pervious versus impervious materials and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it, and it also gets into a different regulating agency as well. Yeah. This could also be uh, an opportunity to like cross-reference that native plant thing that was. Yeah, that reminds me, I've seen 
in my neighborhood, which is not an historic district, but it's like certified natural landscape front yard or something kind of thing. Like, I don't, I'm not sure who's certifying, but it has a sign that says, look, it's not weeds. It's yeah. not a front lawn. It's native plants and it's great. It's a pollinator garden, but I don't know how that relates to it that we're in say Cherokee triangle and the historic planting approach to the landscape of the front. Yeah. Not sure where that goes. This would it's be an sustainable opportunity for to introduce sure. that concept. That's not that maybe yeah. not as appropriate in other sections. Yeah. Those guidelines are in the property maintenance code of this path. Okay. And we should probably somehow reference that or direct people to that. Uh, I have a question about paint, paint, especially color. I wasn't here last time. I was out of town. Uh, just kind of pick your brain a little bit, everybody here. Uh, so if you asked um, somebody to paint the historic building, there's a guideline here has to be a masonry color, kind of that. But if you ask a regular person what is, that color is, if a lot of people think about brick, you know, warm, reddish, you know, color. But if you ask me, I'm not a regular person. <laughs> um, uh, based on my cultural, you know, gray uh, bricks has been around for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. And recently I have a trip to Chicago, which I have a good tour. They used even dark gray, probably the color of Esalen's sweater, you know, maybe a little bit lighter around that. And I think it looks very good, remarkable. Um, so our interpreter has been, you know, has to be sometime in a warm tone, but I just want to see what your thoughts on that, you know, masonry color, uh, is a medium gray or that, or even, you know, uh, is that can be considered, uh, because it doesn't say anything. So it's up to interpretation of staff. I'd like to get some feedback from you and, um, guidance. <laughs> I think you can almost make masonry out of anything. You can do limestone masonry. You can, you know, granite panels on the front of things. There's a lot of different colors you could really get into. Stone masonry is stone. So Light, yeah, we've done a wide variety sandstone. staff level of beiges and grays, and some of them are dark. Dark. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of depends. I mean, there's yellows and pinks almost in some masonries. So. Kind of depends on your soil and depends what your bricks made out of. Um, I think you can kind of run the gamut, which is why I don't know that calling it a masonry color is narrow enough. Or I don't know <laughs> if do we want to be that restrictive, or it's just kind of up to interpretation. It's a lot of interpretation. It depends on who you ask. So, so the last thing I have for you all before you run away, I know you all want to run away, um, is how do we want to proceed with this? Do you all want to make a motion today that you recommend approval of everything we've discussed and we send it on to Metro Council? Do you want to make a motion that we have to bring it all back to you again? How are you all wanting to proceed? Because you've, you've reviewed and talked publicly about every guideline. So... What do we want to do next? You still have a quorum, so you could make any motion you want today. 
well, to remind you, you, we'll be bringing the definitions and illustrations back before we share those with the public. So this is just the written guidelines, not yes. necessarily, you know, the accessory stuff to that. And what we would send to Metro Council would just be the guidelines. I mean, but, just the words. But isn't, I mean, there's, uh, there have been revisions, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, but you haven't completed the revisions yet, right? We have a document that tracked all the revisions from last month. We have not brought it back to you, but we have. It seems to me that the revisions. Are, it's been clear from. Tell from. Level of participation who are experts in this area and who aren't and I consider myself in the latter category, but it just seems to be that. Um, uh, document the final document ought to be shared with and approved by this commission before it goes to uh, metro or to the council okay i mean that's my suggestion I yeah i agree i think especially agree. since we've had some healthy discussion about some items um just kind of seeing where staff feels like that landed and making okay. sure everybody knows what we're voting on before we take a vote can we not give you a binder Thanks. <laughs> we don't need all the tracking. Maybe just the the final set. Yeah, and a, and, a and highlight. Be yeah. a word it document. Be or something. Yeah. Yes, it would just PDF is fine. Yeah, maybe digital. Yeah, we'll have to prepare yeah, it for council. So what it will yes. probably look like is not as shiny and nice as we presented, but it'll just be the guidelines, almost in a lack of a better term, ordinance format, because we yeah. we have to give council only what they need to make their decision. Anyway, so kind of the final draft before it goes to council, it seems like if that could be shared with us, I don't feel like we need to go through this in public again, but we should all be given the opportunity to review it in our time and have a period to asynchronously get comments back like, oh, you forgot when we talked about this. Or, so November maybe something raises to the level of discussion. I'm sorry, Christopher. Yeah. November 16th is your next regular meeting date. And if you all, most people can attend. Um, if you don't mind checking your calendars, um, what we can do is we can go ahead and get you that document. And as you were saying, Christopher, is you all can go ahead and make edits to it. And if there are things that you see that you want to bring back and us talk about publicly, we can do that. Or maybe that meeting is literally just a motion that says we're good. Let's let's send this on. And put it like into that. business session. Yeah, where exactly. It, there's no expectation of public comment now. The I guess the public feel they participated enough through this point, so I don't think that will be an issue because um, we haven't had a lot of public comment at our meetings. So I think that would be fine. And that way, you know, just, if you all want to edit it, edit the version, send it back to us. Well, you know. seems, it seems to me that it's easiest for us to review if you send a red line from from the current what you've sent instead of just a clean one. Yeah, Instead I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. That is that. Um, I'll try my best. Red lines can be hard. We just hard. highlight um, guidelines where we made changes. Just highlight the new one and not, and then you can refer to the old one to see what the previous language was. But getting into kind of a strike through an underline. Um, it's just more work if we can just do it that way. It's just it'll be, hard. That's why we made you those tables because they've sometimes have been completely reorganized. 
And so it's not even named the same guideline anymore, or it's been incorporated into three other guidelines. It, so that's why we made the tables, right? Because we talked about redlining and that's what you all would look at. But instead we made you that analysis table because it, it's just a bear. So we could redline what the consultant has given us and give that to you all. But I don't know about the current guideline. And we just have a, like a list of um, changes based on based on what we have and we look at it, say, have they addressed all our concerns? And what we'll do is we'll create one entire list of all the changes that's clean, for lack of a better way of really explaining it. Then we'll do another document that kind of shows before and after of how we changed them. So in their original wording and how we rewarded it between what the consultant proposed or what Savannah proposed at these meetings, not what the existing guidelines are, because that will get really confusing to show Very all three confusing. of the parts of the evolution. Yeah. So you'll have that would presumably be a shorter document because we've only really talked about changing 20 or so guidelines in a meaningful way. Would it be simpler to just reference and then we have the binder? Do that as well. Um, I mean, it's easiest to for you. In my mind, this is how it makes sense to me is that I give you a clean version and you also still have those analysis sheets with the tables that show you the new guideline, the old guideline. And we can update that table if you want to include some of the things we talked about in here. So your specific comments, because that table has staff comments, so we can update it with the comments from these meetings, commissioner comments, and then give you a clean copy. How about that? Okay. I think that table will address Emily's concern. I think it'll have each. Because then you can look straight across. You can see the old guideline, the new guideline, what staff had said to you in here, and then what you all said back to us. And the only question I'd have there is if you're sending the new clean version, are you highlighting what's changed since the one that's in here? Or are you not? It's just totally clean and we'll just look at it fresh. Because I would methodology look at yeah. look at what's in like here. Highlight in the yeah, clean one the anything clean where there's been changes yeah. from yeah, what was. I think that yeah, we can do that. I think that's good. Okay. Because I'll refer back to all of this stuff. So we'll make it. So here's what I'm promising today. We'll make you a whole new table for each of the guidelines so you can see what has changed over time and what your comments were in public hearing. And then we will give you a clean version that's highlighted to show what's changed after public hearing based on your feedback to us. Okay. Everybody okay with that? Sounds good. Okay. Then it could be as simple as a, a business thing to, to vote to put it on to Metro Council unless someone read something and said, oh, we need to discuss this in public. Yeah, because I don't envision we need to go through every single guideline again. You can discuss them in yeah. business session. What yes. business session does is make it clear that there's not gonna be public comment so there's not an expectation of that um, when we put it on the agenda. Do we have any expectation to get this adopted before the end of the year at Metro Council? Because they, uh, there's a cutoff date for what is a last agenda item we can transmit it over. So I, I think we are, we are close. I November. talked to Sonia and it was like the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, somewhere around in there of November. So we're not, we're not going to make that. Not, their okay. process, we don't know how long their process will take. I don't well, and that was just to hopefully get on get an agenda this. before the new year. That was a hopeful, it's, it's been taking like five years already, anyway. We, we're not in that big of a rush because, um, 
basically, if we don't get it in by November, the committees will kind of shift. We don't even really know what committee this will go to. We're under the assumption it would go to planning and zoning because that's the closest one to what um, this is. But it probably won't because we won't have it heard in January. It probably won't be heard till February anyway. So that means there's no rush to make a decision today. <laughs> yep. So hold the 16th on your calendars, please. And we will have new documentation for you before that, of course. So you have time to review it, look over it. And if there's anything we want to bring up during the 16th to talk about, to edit again or fix, we can do that on the 16th. And then hopefully from there, we have your final draft and we can keep moving forward. Okay, thank you all. That's all I have. Motion to adjourn. Second. <laughs> Aye. Bye. Bye.